So I want to tell you today that we are launching a new sermon series, and uh, we're going to be a part of a nationwide emphasis across Southern Baptist churches uh, on an emphasis about who's your one. It's, it's an emphasis for us to really pray through, think about, seek out, and look for those conversations to share the gospel with one and not losing the point of what that means. And uh, we're looking at that, and that's, that's a part of this emphasis. But today, before we look out on who we're going to go seek, we also need to ask about who we follow. We need to look really deeply at what that means today and, and whether we get it. And, and maybe you got it a long time ago, and maybe you lost sight of it along the way, or maybe you've had it all along, which has kind of been dormant. And I think all of us, even from the, the person that stands on the platform to the person that cleans the toilet or somewhere in between, all of us need to look at this question, am I a follower of Jesus? Now, while we do that, when we look at that, it helps us to strip away and get to the bare bones about who we are as believers, as Christians. And, and I'll just ask you the same question I asked the kids. Now, now you can keep it in your in, inside, but just think about this. What pops into your head? What comes into your mind when you hear the word Christian? What is there? Maybe it's a series of words. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a stereotype. Maybe it's a caricature. Maybe it's something you saw once on a Christian film. Maybe it's something you heard in the past. Maybe it's something you look back and you think, I wish Christian looked more like this from a decade long ago. Or maybe, maybe it's not a positive picture. Maybe for you, when you hear the word Christian, it might actually even send a, a, a shiver up your spine. It might make you cringe a little bit. Uh, not because you don't know any nice Christians, but the, the viewpoint of a Christian, it just is not bent very positively in the way the world presents it. And maybe it's not in just the way the world presents it. Maybe you've been in a church where people that identify themselves as Christians weren't exactly Christ-like, weren't exactly followers of Jesus. They were followers of something, and they looked religious, and they said really faithful and spiritual words. But maybe, just maybe, when you hold up Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our imagination, but the Jesus of the Bible, and you hold it next to this, this image that popped in your head of Christian, maybe it's incompatible. And we must ask, what's up with that? Why is that even a possibility, a plausibility? Let me present to you a surprising statistic, by the way, just so you get an idea where I'm going. And I'm not trying to slam anybody, but I do want us to get the gravity and, and, and what we're looking at when we talk about a follower of Christ versus the image of a Christian. A surprising statistic that did you know that astounding amount of Americans, four out of five American adults profess to be Christians? Did you know that? That's astounding to me to think about that because I run into a lot of people that would say, no, I'm definitely not a Christian. But in the poll that was taken nationwide, an astounding four out of five Americans profess to be Christians uh, with half of all question claiming, half of them, so that's two out of the four, said they were born again Christians. 
We would call that an evangelical Christian. A person that believes in using the words the Bible uses about being born again. But this is also what the survey indicated. They profess to be Christians and two out of the four that profess that they were born again Christians. And yet, they also said they rarely attended any worship at church. They also said they didn't really believe the Bible to be completely true. They also said they did not allow their beliefs in church to affect their lives. And they also said they certainly did not actively share what is called the gospel with others. They weren't actively doing that. Four out of five Americans. This is not a foreign country. We should pray for those nations as well. We should pray for nations that we would consider third world or second world, whether you think they are violent countries or whether they have tragedies or second world countries like what happened in New Zealand this week. But this is what happened in America with this survey. So here's the deal. Once again, the word Christian, this this phrase they identified themselves as, is only used three times in the New Testament. And all three times is used in a derogatory way. It's a way that people outside of the church identified these followers of Jesus. They were kind of giving them the slang of little Jesus, his little Christ, um, a modern day language that we would probably use today would not be calling them little Jesuses or little Christ, but uh, I, we love this term as a, as a 90s teen in a Christian church. They, a Jesus freak. Yeah, that's right. Represent DC talk. Some of you don't even know who that is, but I was a 90s teen. They were like the in stuff at the time. But... The difference is, when it comes to the New Testament alone, the New Testament, when it describes the church, when the church describes himself, when the church is communicating about itself, some 281 times in the New Testament alone, the word disciple is used. What is a disciple? It's a true believer in the, in the Christian realm, in the, in the biblical sense. It is a true believer who follows Jesus in faith and practice. Now, this is not me trying to get us to no longer use the word Christian. I, you know, that's not me trying to abolish the term. But I do want us to help think about with clarity how we convey ourselves. Because sometimes if we've just identified merely as Christian, we might have lost sense of the identifying marker that says, you're a disciple, you're supposed to be a follower. Not the person on the platform, not the person that's elevated, the person that's behind the one to be celebrated. A follower. You may ask, well, okay, then that's the case. Let me, how do I evaluate that? Because all of us want a test that we can pass, right? You know, you, you want to take a class that you know you can pass. You want to take an exam that you know that you can get correct. You know you can, you want to come up for that, that promotion activity that you know that you're going to be able to overcome. How would I know if I'm a disciple? Or let me put it this way. How can I know I'm a faithful disciple? Because I believe you could be a disciple and not be faithful. It's, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's, possible that at one time you followed jesus but in this present day circumstance maybe you found yourself not as faithful not as close not as active not as vocal not as caring not as serving as you once were at some point in your life so what is a faithful disciple a faithful disciple is someone that we can know we're a faithful disciple when we were following christ in a way that we are disciples who make other disciples It is the identifying marker that we are His, we are growing, 
And our life is, is actively leading others to replicate who we are. Now, there's this multiplication process in it that shares, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm inviting you to be one as well. Let's look at the sermon text today. We're going to be in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, the, the first gospel you find whenever you get into the New Testament. Uh, it's going to be in your pew Bible on page 857, and I invite you to turn there. By the way, if you do not have a copy of God's Word that is readable to you and, and that you can make sense out of, we invite you to keep that copy that's right there in the pew. It's not just for looks, it's for you to have in your hands, in your heart. It's the CSB version, the version I'm going to be preaching out of. But let's stand and honor God in the reading of His Word. Chapter 4, we're only going to be looking at four verses of Scripture today. But man, they are potent. I mean, all the Scripture is potent, all Scripture is good. But there are certain ones that just stick out and they just snap and get you. And you or some of them, that when you read them, I've read that before and it may not be as potent. But today, I think it is, even if you've heard it before. It says, as He he being Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let us pray. Lord God, today, as we get into your word, may it resound and, and just hold over our heart that this is your word. And we must learn from you, the one who spoke it. We must worship you, the one who gave it. And that this book, these words to us are a gift of your love and your grace and your kindness to a people in need of you, to the church so they may grow as disciples and to the world so that they may become disciples. So help us hear it, help us obey it, help us live it, help us love it, help us communicate it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So our goal when we come together is help people to understand the Bible. The Bible is God's Word. It's good for us. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's perfect. It's, it's inerrant. It's infallible. That means there is no wrongs in it. It's truth in all of its mixture. And when we get into the Word, we want to present it to other people because it's what God passed on to us through faithful men and women, and we must in turn pass on and be faithful men and women so that others may know. But when we read, sometimes there's questions. You ever read something and you're like, i got to go back and read that and figure out what's going on. And we understand there's questions and we want to help you work through it. And we certainly want to do that when it comes to the Bible. So some questions that come up is, well, what does it say? That's why we spend time to actually read the Bible. We're not coming up just doing a TED Talk and just theorizing about our own experiences. While that might be entertaining and unique and enjoyable, it would not be looking at God's Word. And we want to do that. But when we look at God's Word, we need to see what it says. And once again, I'll say this, I've said this before, let us be very, very thankful, thankful and grateful that we have God's Word in our language. There are still peoples in the Word 
in the world that do not have the Word. And it is not available in their language. And that's still an ongoing ministry to get that translated and available into their hands. There's some people that do not have it because it's illegal to possess one in public. It's illegal to possess one, period. But certainly to be seen one with one in public. And we have the ability to open it before us and see God's Word for ourselves to see what it says. We also need to ask what it means by looking at the author. Obviously, God is the ultimate author, but He used men to pen these words. Who are they? Where did they come from? What did they do? Why were they the person doing this? We need to look at the audience. Who were they writing to? Who would be the original readers that, that had this and preserved it for us? And what is the aim? What is the goal for this literature? So we look at this. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, uh, it's widely considered to be the author of this book. He was also known in his Hebrew name as Levi. And he was formerly a tax collector before accepting the invitation to follow Jesus as one of Jesus' disciples. And uh, when you read Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, you see the calling of Matthew, this, this one who was sitting at a tax booth. And Jesus saw him and he said, follow me. And he got up and left everything and followed him. Now, the timing of this gospel and to where it was written is, is recorded by scholars to have been somewhere around the mid-50s to mid-60s A.D., what does that mean to you? You may, not, you may not be a big history buff, but what this means is this was written within 15 to 25 years of Jesus' life. Those that were living and breathing and saw Jesus and what he did and, and, and heard about the resurrection and witnessed the resurrection, they were still around to say, yeah, that happened or no, that didn't. And there is no reporting of them saying, no, it didn't other than bribing guards to say, oh, they, uh, well, we heard your story, let's make up another one. And there it's, it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is easily within the lifetime of the first generation of, of Christ's followers and, and the surrounding witness. We also see that it's written with an aim to reach people of a Jewish background. Uh, many times the book of Matthew speaks about these customs that were very closely related to the Jewish traditions of the day and to what the Scripture of the Old Testament said about this coming Messiah. So the audience would have been very familiar with that. And even here, we're going to see a little bit of that. So we need to say, see when it comes to questions of the Bible, what does it say? What does it mean? And then we need to look say, all right, well, there's the meaning. How does it apply to me today? How, what is the significance? The meaning doesn't change, but how does that roll over to me? And where I am, or where we are as a church. And lastly, the question about worship is, will I trust what God is saying to it? Because once again, it's God's word speaking to us. Will we trust that? Now our aim as we look at this fragment of text today is to see that following Jesus, it means following the calling of Jesus to be, first of all, his disciples. Second of all, to be his disciples that make disciples. Now, when I've read this text before, maybe you've heard it preached that here we have Jesus. It's the Sea of Galilee, and he's just walking around, you know, with his, uh, you know, clothing of the day, and he just sees two random dudes there at the beach and walks up to him and says, hey, follow me. And they're like, okay. And that'd be all. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, wouldn't that sound kind of weird? That doesn't sound really like real life, does it? Now, that's the grateful thing for having four Gospels because it gives us some outside pictures about what's going on. And when you read the book of John, you see that both 
Peter and Andrew were already familiar with Jesus. Peter had already been given the name Peter. It was not his given name. It was the name that Jesus gave him as a nickname, meaning the rock. Now, I'll be honest. That would be a cool nickname. If Jesus says, you are the rock, and I would be like, yeah. You know, that sounds awesome. I, I would I would be very legit with that. And, and very. Yeah, that would be awesome. But they'd already met Jesus. And this is how that encounter went. Andrew happened to be one of John the Baptist's followers, one of his disciples. He was learning from John the Baptist. And one day, after John had baptized Jesus, he saw Jesus walking, and he told his disciples that were with him, Andrew being one of them, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Andrew's like very intrigued. He says, well, if that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then I need to follow him. And so he leaves John's side and starts following Jesus. And he does, and, and Jesus starts talking to him. And then after the conversation goes, Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. So they've already met here. The book of Luke also tells us that this encounter at the beach included a little bit more than Jesus just walking. I was walking at the beach one day in the very, very month of May. That's not what's going on. Jesus has already got a crowd with him. And Peter and Andrew have been fishing all night and they're mending their nets at the shore. And Jesus, because of the crowd, he ends up stepping into one of their boats. And they put out just a little bit and Jesus starts teaching the crowd. And then in this moment, also the book of Luke records that, that after he began, finished teaching, he told these men, hey, set out a little bit more deeper water and, and cast your net out. And, uh, I'm, I'm guessing Peter and them were trying to be respectful of the, of the wise teacher that had drawn a crowd. But they're like, okay, sure, we'll, we'll humor you. But then, uh, whenever he tells them to let the nets out, he's like, we've, we've fished all night and didn't catch anything. But they, they humored him. And they throw it out, and, and all of a sudden there's this huge haul. And that's where John and James get invited in. They're, they're having to help drag this in. So when Jesus makes this calling, they've already demonstrated and heard Jesus' teaching. They've already heard of the confirmation that came from John the Baptist about his identity. They've already witnessed a major miracle of Jesus. So all these identifying things have happened at this moment. So whenever he's saying, follow me, they're like, we got all the proof we need. Absolutely. Now, I do want to warn you that, you know, don't wait till you feel like all of your questions are answered and everything else before you follow Jesus. It's good to have some questions answered. But if we wait till every single one of them are answered, we, probably most of us would never ever follow Jesus. But whenever he makes that impression that I am who I say I am, my words have merit beyond anything you could comprehend. See what I've done in other people's lives. Please let those be things that to solidify your faith that says, yes, let me answer the call that Jesus has said to follow Him. But I also want you to notice some other things. Because this sermon is um, about who's your one and it does gear us towards evangelism, you may think that, well, there's certain levels of Christians. you got your super Christians. Those are the ones that like, you know, they, they will sell all their worldly possessions and they'll become missionaries and learn to speak a foreign language and go across the seas and stuff. And that's like your super Christian. You're like, you know, management level Christian is like a preacher or something. And then you have like, uh, I don't know, maybe this other office. And you have like this office that people that serve. And then you have those that say, well, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, so I'll do nothing. And so we put these categories in 
of who should be those ultimate followers. But I want you to notice that is not what is talked about here. I want you to first of all notice in this text that who Jesus calls out. Who it is that Jesus calls. He says, follow me, he told them. Who was them? These were roughneck fishermen. They were untrained, uneducated. The book of Acts tells us this. But they were basic, basic Hebrew dudes. They had the same education that most of the average folk had at the time. And yet it is these that Jesus calls out. Why do I call them average folks? Well, you had people that were in the family business, and then you had people that were rabbis. They had this category system of that's a super believer, and this is a, an average Joe, if you will. You see, in the Hebrew culture, why this said this relates to Hebrew culture, it says that all Hebrew boys, they went to a Torah school at their synagogue at the age of five. Five. Now, that's kindergarten, so we get that. We can understand that. What would they do in Torah school? Well, between five and, and ten, they would go and study and read everything and memorize, or at least attempt to memorize, everything from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Just pick up your Bible if you have one. I know that uh, some of you watch it on electronics and uh, read it on electronics so it doesn't have the gravity there when you look at the list. But just open up to Genesis 1 and hold that up and then look at Deuteronomy chapter 34. Imagine your life from the age from 5 to 10 being the goal to memorize this. All of this. That was what was required of Hebrew boys in their education from age 5 to 10. Memorize this. Know this. Now, if they were the best students out of that by age 10, they would be called to go on and memorize the rest, or at least learn the rest, from Joshua all the way to Malachi, the Italian prophet. I kid, of course, his name is Malachi, but just to keep you entertained and awake. Imagine that. Now, hold that much, that breath. On top of that, which you've already held, that breath of language, that, that breath of knowledge. Now, once they had done this in the Torah school, the best of the best of the best, at age 17 would go and, and make a career out of religious studies. They would find a rabbi that they admired, their teaching style, their lifestyle, their living arrangements, and they would apply to become their disciples. They would say, can I be your disciples? And, and uh, when they found one, they would sit their feet a little while and the, the rabbi would survey their life and what they know. And if their application looked good and, and maybe their parents padded the pocket of the rabbi. Oh, sorry, that's too soon. Um, uh, this would be welcome into this school. Sorry, I, w- I didn't mean to cut it out on the Laurie Laughlin full house thing that happened in the news. So, no, after they passed a series of tests, after they went through the application process, the rabbis would then choose the best of the best of the best out of that group that came into his feet. And whenever he saw them, he would say, follow me. You can come live with me. You can come walk where I walk. 
You can learn to talk as I talk. You can learn to do as I do. And then one day, whenever I am no more, you will be the rabbi. That was how this process goes. But if you were 10 and you weren't the best of the best, you went home. And if you were 17 and maybe you were the best of the best, but you weren't the best of the best of the best, you went home. And you took on the family trade. May God's blessing be upon you. So whenever we see John and James and Peter and Andrew as fishermen, what we're seeing is people that were not considered the best of the best of the best. Maybe not even the best of the best. And probably not even best. They were untrained, uneducated. Yeah, they knew the the Torah probably. But that's all they knew. And yet, here Jesus is calling them. Notice who Jesus calls out to. Now you may be thinking, I am not special. I don't even think I'm good. Much less great. I don't feel like I have value. I feel like I struggle. I have all these things that's going on in my life. And, and, and I hear you, Pastor, saying that Jesus calls the untrained, but He wouldn't want me. You don't know me. Well, I would venture to say that you don't know all of me either. You don't. You know some of me. You know the questions that I've answered and those kind of things. And I would be open in front of you. Ask me any question to tell you what I know. But here's a life that was wrecked with sin. Rampant, blatant sin. Knowing what God's Word had said and yet choosing to do something else. Here's, here's a man that I, I have a good marriage. I don't have a perfect marriage. I'll just be honest. We, I love my wife. She is a giver of grace to me every day. But we have a real marriage, not a perfect marriage. We fight sometimes. We do. It's amazing. Now, not like fight like that. No, we don't do that. And I don't mean to make light of that. If you're facing that, leave. Don't do that. Don't stay there. I've been passed over for career opportunities. Whenever I tried to apply for things, there were things where someone said, yeah, you're not the best of the best. I'd like to go somewhere else. So here's what I want you to know about that. I'm just being real with you that Jesus is not looking for you to pass all the exams. He's not looking for the spiritual aptitude test and seeing what your score rating is or your credit rating or how good people would say your marriage is at this moment. Jesus is saying, I'm calling out who everyone else in the world would write off and maybe have written off themselves and saying, it's you that I want to follow me. And we can do that. And why does He choose us? John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit that your fruit should remain. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. So here's the rub on this. If, If you're struggling with how Jesus calls and who Jesus calls and and wrestling with, is that you? Here's the answer. Yes, it's you that Jesus is calling. And it's me that Jesus is calling. And it's we that Jesus is calling to follow Him. How does God want to do that? Here's the rub of that. God wants you and wants me and wants to use us in our family. He wants to use us in our workplace. He wants to use us in our community. He wants to use us in our schoolyard. He wants to use us in the factory. He wants to use us in the business room. He wants to use you in the, in the everyday conversation when you're getting your coffee from your barista. Remember last time I almost said barista and I said bartender. But barista. And for some of you, it may need, God wants to use you in front of your bartender. 
They need Jesus too. Just like we do. But it's time for us, the church as a whole, not just Eastgate, but the church in America, and not only the church as a whole, but individuals within it, to stop making excuses as if we're not able. Because here's the rub. None of us are except when Jesus calls us. But because we're with Jesus, that makes all the difference. Don't count yourself out. See who Jesus calls. And what you need to know is God doesn't need your incredible ability. He needs and requires your availability. And God can use that. Secondly, I want you to notice what Jesus calls for. He calls to these men, these untrained men. But then he says, I'm asking you, this is what I'm calling for, you to follow me. You to follow me. Not to follow a way, not to follow a tradition, not to follow a heritage, not to follow a voting block. You to follow me and then everything else I'll take care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. We provide them to you. You'll understand what you're meant to do in these other things. But the key thing that you're to do if you're going to be known as a disciple and be available is to follow Jesus. That's what He was asking for them to follow Him. That is the what of it. And so I have to ask you a question right there where you're sitting. Here's the rub that, that faces you and faces me. Who do I follow? Who is it? Some of you right there in your mind, you, you've got your answer. Who has the greatest sway on your life? And I know it's easy to be in a church and say, I know I need to fill in the Jesus bubble. That's the, that's the answer on the test. It is. That's where the little circle on my number two graphite pencil goes. But if someone were to look at your life, is that what they would say? Outside observer looking in to test the experiment, is that what they would say? I, I lived in the 90s, so sometimes we had all these weird cliches at times. And, and I get it, they were useful. They helped teach me a lot of things. But the one was like, if you were ever put on trial for being a follower of Jesus, is there enough evidence to convict? Me looking at a life that was blatant with rebellious sin, I could be like, well, I know what the answer is supposed to be, and I do go to church on Sunday, but the implications of my life, the other some odd hours, yeah, I don't know. I'm thankful that God reminds us over and over again through innumerable second chances. We sit here today as an act of God's grace, His kindness to us, to once again be reminded and asked, will something change today if the answer is not me? Will something change if your answer is not me? Because today is the extension of my grace. I didn't take you out back and whoop you. I didn't call you up yonder. I gave you another day, another moment to take that moment and say, God, I humbly repent and turn to you. And thank you that you were patient with me. Thirdly, I want you to notice where Jesus calls to. Where Jesus calls to. His 
call was to is what was to follow, but his call was to follow me. He did not tell the disciples where they were going or what assignment he had for them in the specific. He said, "This is the general one." We're going to get to that in a moment. But his primary call was not to do something or to achieve something. It was to follow him in such a way that you would be like him. To become like him. Here's the thing: you have to know him. Make no mistake about it, when we talk about being a Christian, when we talk about being a disciple, the only way you become like Jesus is by knowing Jesus. Everything else is going to be our a spin on a religion. And thankfully, by the work of the cross, we can get to know God. We can draw near to His very holy presence. We can know Him. And to know Him, well, let's just be honest, Jesus in His full earthly physical manifestation that we see in the Bible is not in this room right now. I mean, I think if we're seeing that, we're probably seeing things, right? The Holy Spirit is here, and that's God. But Jesus in His earthly form, where we could say, I'm leaving my job, I'm going to follow that dude and walk where He walks and live with us, that's a little impossible for us at this point. This side of the cross. But it's not an impossibility to know Jesus. There's a way. You get into the Word of God until the Word of God gets in you. That's what a pastor friend likes to say that I listen to a lot. His name's Robbie Gallaty. You get into the Word of God until the Word of God gets in you. To know God, listen to the Word that He spoke. And it is not only authoritative, we know that the Bible is the ultimate authority. It is sufficient. It is sufficient for us to know Jesus. If all we had was the Word of God, it would be enough. But Jesus has given us more than the Word of God. He says, I give you the Word of God and you don't steer away from it. But I've surrounded you with other believers who have walked through it, who have learned from it, who have loved it, who have lived it. And they're going to share in this life because you do not need to be alone with this. It's sufficient in itself. But I've given you more. Because we have a God of grace. Fourthly, I want you to notice how God, how Jesus calls us. How He called them. He says, follow me. Well, what did that mean for them in, in like actually putting the rubber to the road, the pedal to the metal, the, putting the gear in, in, in drive? What did that mean? It says, for them immediately, not days later, not months later, not a year later, not whenever they filled up their 401k or everything looked padded or whatever. It says, immediately, immediately, they left the boat and their father Followed him. Now, it's unique that the Bible presents this. It's what happened in the moment, so it's just that's there. But at the same time, the implications of it are so powerful and significant to our lives. One, they left their boats. They left their careers. The way that they had figured out the means to take care of themselves. And Peter was married for his family. In following the calling of Jesus to follow him, they had to let go of their career. Now, it doesn't mean God calls every one of us to leave our career. Some of us are strategically placed there to be that leverage that God has to win people to Jesus in that place. 
But for them, they had to leave their career. But the question is, which holds greater worth to you? What holds the greatest worth? Are you a follower of your career? Or are you a follower of Jesus? You can live and do both. But you can only follow one. The second is that they left their father. Now, their father was their co-worker, but that's a pretty significant relationship. Especially when we look at John. Some people thought John, when they read the New Testament, they see how long John lived, they thought John was probably a teenager. He was probably 14 to 16 when he started following Jesus as one of the first apostles. One of those reminders again, once again, don't discount the youth and what they are capable of doing and how we should also develop them. But here's the key. How Jesus calls us means that when it comes to the area of worship, if it's it's an act of worship, who has the altar? Who has the peace that says, this is what's my worship? This is it. Lastly, I want you to notice this question. Why Jesus calls? Why he called them? Why he calls us? He told them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. I know the the nicer way and the more familiar way is I will make you fishers of men. That just sounds more beautiful, doesn't it? It says the same thing. I'll make you fishers of men. So, Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to His Lordship and to His leadership. That We say, God, all of it I owe to You and I will follow. Wherever You lead, I'll go. Wherever You lead, I'll go. I'll follow my Jesus who loves me so. Wherever You lead, I will go. That's a song that was so familiar and echoed in many Baptist churches for so long. And yet, was it just words or, or is something we've lost? Is it the reason we don't, is it because we don't sing the song anymore? I don't think it's because we don't sing the song anymore. They didn't were required to sing a song to follow Jesus. They just followed. And songs began erupting in the church that was birthed out of their movement. So following Jesus means this area of lordship. First of all, it means that you forsake. This is what repentance looks like. You begin forsaking all that He has forbidden. That's a step of being a disciple. No longer letting other things be master over your life that Jesus has already forbidden. But the second is you begin pursuing all that He has prescribed. Once again, God has said, these are the things you are not to do because I forbid them, and these are the things you are to absolutely pursue because I prescribed them for you. You've got to have both in your life. In this commissioning, as Jesus speaks to them, these were fisher already, so the idea of being a fisher, the work that it would take, the laboring, this is not them going out fishing for leisure. Even fishing for leisure takes work. You've got to get out and find where the fish are. You've got to have the right equipment. If you're going to get in the water, you better be prepared for that. If you're going to use nets, they better be good nets. If you're using a rod and reel, you better have a good hook. You better have the right test line on it. You better have the right bait. Am I right? I'm absolutely right. And I haven't caught hardly anything, but I know that. So 
So Jesus used this terminology that it's going to require labor, and yet they're willing because they see the purpose. They see it's an essential part of being a disciple that they would follow him, and by following him, they would help others follow him. It was absolutely essential. There should be no such thing as a non reproducing Christian. And yet, it's an imbalance that is rampant in many churches. It's an imbalance that was once a hold of my life strongly. And at times, I even have to struggle through the apathy, through the self serving. And through the distractions and through the need for security and for the desire for likability. For the, the fear of rejection. It's something that I struggle through. And I, I don't, I'm not casting stones at you guys thinking, oh, y'all need to do this. And yeah, if you're not doing this, you're worthless. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Jesus has somehow, in His grace, found worth to us all to be about this beautiful task. So let's not take it for granted. Let's see the fact that, wow, Jesus, you would call somebody like me. And you would want me to be with you. And, and, and either that means leaving other things, I get to learn from you. But then also, it's not purposeless. It's not pointless. I may not have figured out every little detail about what God wants me to accomplish in life, but God has not left this part a mystery. It's clear. The very beginning of Matthew, and then echoed at the very end of Matthew, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He would say in the Gospel of John, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. In other words, God is glorified when we live out what He desires for us to live and do. And He has invited us to be a part, to learn and be as He is, a person that seeks to save the lost. If that's who Jesus is, the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, and disciples are meant to be His followers, And the true term of a Christian from the Bible's perspective is to be a little imitator of Jesus. Well, shouldn't that summarize our our nature, our life too? This week and next few months, churches all over America are going to be praying through this. Southern Baptist brothers and sisters and churches in this community and beyond to ask and really get to the point, who's our one? Who are we following and who is Jesus telling us to help follow him and make no mistake this is something we are all called to do and this is something because of jesus we can still all do let's pray lord god this task of following you and being a fisher of men it it, if it did not come without the gospel that shares a holy god redeeming the sinfulness of man and presenting the sufficiency of Christ so that we may have grace that is gifted from you to us, it would absolutely be impossible. It would be a task too great of a burden for anyone. 
but because of who you are and what you've done and how you speak. We know that it comes from the one true living God, so it has meaning and merit in our life. So draw us to a point of response and worship today of what will we do with the word that you, God, have spoken to us today in this divine appointment. Jesus, in this moment, have your way. Should those that have questions have questions, lead them to find the answers, whether it be by talking to someone or opening up your word or whatever it may be. Help them find that next step. For the one who is struggling with that next trust issue of obedience, help them take that next step. And for the one who needs to follow you, Jesus, to have salvation and take that first step as a disciple, give them the knowledge of you, the grace from you that awakens that faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.